0: Uh, Before we get started, I just wanted to make a couple quick announcements. Uh, My name is Nick Marshall. I'm the manager of exhibitions and programs here at the museum. Uh, see a lot of familiar faces in the audience, and it's great to see you all. Uh, for those of you who haven't been here for Focus 45 talk, this is a monthly series that we do that highlights different projects going on around the museum. Uh, so I encourage you to check the calendar uh, and see. Uh, we have the full year's uh, list uh, already posted online, so you can see. Um, and it's in actually in our January, February bulletin has the full list published there as well. Um, so. Uh, as many of you know, uh, it's a little crazy around here today. We uh, are kicking off the Dutch Connection exhibit, uh, so uh, if you haven't already, please uh, go through the mansion and see the wonderful flowers. Um, as part of that, uh, every year we open an exhibition called Eastman in whatever uh, that 100 year would have been. Uh, so this year it's Eastman in 1919. Um, It's an exhibition that's curated by Jesse Pierce, who's an assistant archivist in the Legacy Collection. And uh, I'm really excited about the show this year. Um, It's moved locations. It used to be at the top of the stairwell. It's now in the sitting room. Uh, So uh, please do uh, go check that out as well. Jesse's actually gonna be doing the Focus 45 next month on uh, March 9th, uh, same time at noon. Uh, And then in April, um, myself and our chief object preparator, Emily Emily Phoenix um, is going to be doing, uh, we're going to be doing a talk on behind the scenes of exhibitions at the museums. Uh, So that's going to be a lot of fun, and that's April 6th. Um, On your way out, we have some postcards. I think Jamie's probably going to talk about uh, some of Tanya's work as well. This is for an upcoming exhibition that opens in, uh, in June. Uh, June 7th is the opening evening um, of Tanya Marcuse's photographs. And Tanya's work will be featured in some of Jamie's talk here. Uh, But it's it's related to today's talk. And it's really amazing, uh, immersive work that I'm really excited to bring to the museum and share with you all. So um, I'm going to go ahead and turn over to Jamie here in a second. Um, I think that that's all of the housekeeping. we're going to do a book signing afterward if you'd like to purchase a book. There are limited copies available, very limited copies available in the gift shop. So don't, please don't hurt each other running out of here to try and get one. I know everybody wants Jamie's signature, but Jamie is at the museum Monday through Friday. And you can <laughs> find her. And we'll always have books if we settle out today and we can get one. Uh, so please join me in welcoming our... Stephen B. and Janice G. Ashley, Associate Curator in the Department of Photography, Jamie M. Allen. Good
1: morning. Thank you, Nick. Um, so yeah, so a couple of years ago in 2015, we had an exhibition called In the Garden. And while that exhibition was up on the wall, uh, one of the editors from Aperture, which is a pretty well-known um, photography book publisher if you're not familiar with them uh, was here at the museum and she said I can't wait to buy the book and I said well there isn't one and she said what there's not a book and I said no she said well let's make one and I was like wow that's really exciting prospect Um, and what was great about the book project was that we were able to expand well beyond what's housed in our collection and really look at um, things that that we don't have the privilege of having in our collection look at a lot more contemporary work for that reason Um, and also just kind of expand upon the ideas. So I worked with another um, woman named Sarah McNear, and I uh, wrote the introductory essay. The editor, uh, Denise Wolf, Sarah McNear, and myself picked out all the the photographs that are in it. We worked on putting them into a sequence um, and kind of reconfiguring what was the exhibition into a new book project. So today I just wanna take you through some of that history that is um, featured in the book and also featured in the exhibition. Um, Hopefully what my goal is is to sort of show you the whole of the history of photography. So invention to today. Uh, I always like to think about photography as one long trajectory of of what we do with cameras. Um, So a little bit of technology, just a little bit. Hopefully it's not too scary. And, um, And just show you a lot of beautiful images, which on a day like today when it's all snowy and cold, it's nice to see something bring so. a yeah. So I wanted to start with the invention of photography, because at that invention of photography, what we really have is a bunch of scientists who are in their basically basement labs working out, how can I get a picture to stay here on this piece of paper? And there's several things that are going on all at the same time in a lot of different places. But essentially, the invention of photography is about making that image stay on the piece of paper. It's about fixing it to that piece of paper. Robert Hunt, um, we do have these objects in our collection. These are purely experimental. And so when I say that they're a chromotype, I really can't tell you what that means. Because everything that I read about it kind of led me in a lot of different directions. Um, sometimes I saw that it had iron in it. Sometimes I saw it had copper in it. Well, copper would certainly explain that fantastic orangey color. Um, that the one has, but it doesn't really tell me about the purpley color the other one has. So really, these are probably the things he was experimenting on. These are the prints he was making as he was trying to invent that process, which is a really exciting thing to have in our collection. Um, What you'll notice is that they're just pure botanical specimens. So he's got this piece of sensitized paper and needs something to test it with. So he goes outside, picks a leaf, sticks it on there, puts it in the sun, and hopes for the best. So really, it's, I think, a a moment of access, something that's close by. Um, But they're really beautiful. Probably better known to most people is William Henry Fox Talbot, who is noted as one of the inventors of photography. (laughs) And These are a couple of photogenic drawings that are in our collection. When I say photogenic drawing, um, what I mean is that that's a name that he um, gave to it but today we might call them photograms so again that idea that there's a piece of sensitized paper he's setting something in direct contact with it putting it out in some sort of light source and probably watching that paper physically change in front of him he's watching those edges of it where the light is hitting um, actually darken in front of his eyes and when it gets to a point that he's happy with it taking it back to his lab And again, trying to fix that image into that paper. And that's one of the things that Tabagate's kind of actually figured out how to do is to fix that image in that paper. Um, But in those early days, they weren't super permanent. So over time, these have faded. Um, But I've enhanced one for you. So I I blew up that one section and kind of brought the color back a little bit so you can see the level of detail. We see all the veins in the leaf, Um, and I love that He's really giving us that kind of close-up view of this plant material, even though it's probably just him experimenting. Uh, For Talbot, it was really important that it wasn't him drawing the image, it was light drawing the image, or the sun drawing the image. And so that's where his photogenic drawing, light drawing, um, basically came from. He um, didn't think he was a very good artist, so photography was great for him. A similar process to photogenic drawing is cyanotype, um, which is an iron-based process, but it gives us this beautiful Prussian blue color. And Anna Atkins, who's an early female photographer, worked on a series of British algae specimens. And she published these into a series of um, folios or books. So really one of the earliest photo um, books, photographically illustrated books that ever was, was made. And the the images are beautiful. So what she did was she went and took algae, sandwiched it between two pieces of glass, which was advantageous because that allowed her to be sort of a scientist, right? She could take those things and reproduce that same specimen on multiple prints because she basically had invented a negative um, that she could use to to, to do that, just like Talbot was doing with a leaf specimen. and I just had to put this in here because I like that she used the algae to even write the text. Yeah. So what I wanted to do was look at one particular specimen, the one on the right, and kind of compare it to some of the other technologies that were available throughout time to show the difference between what photography could do in those early days and maybe what scientists wanted to do. So of course, the earliest way of collecting a specimen would have been to physically collect that specimen, which might dry, might brittle, might change color, might shrivel up a little bit. So it's not really a one-for-one understanding of what that thing is. So in this case, photography might be a little bit better because we actually have the size and scale, but we don't have the color. Then um, another way of making prints early on was the nature print. And in this case, they're physically pressing the specimen into a lead plate. And what's wonderful is in our collection we have some uh, specimens by who we, who we believe is Alois Auer
0: who invented
1: that nature print process. So he took a lead plate, put that plant specimen onto it, ran it through a press and that specimen's actually physically making an impression into that plate. What Auer did was electroplate it, so it now became a very sturdy substance, so it wasn't that soft lead anymore. Then you can ink that plate, so the ink goes down into the the specimen kind of grooves that it's made, put a piece of paper on it, and then when he runs it through the press, what's amazing is that you get this 3D reproduction of that pressed flower or pressed plant, or in the case of the algae, pressed algae. Um, but this is so detailed, and uh, Tana our conservator, helped me make these microscopic views of it, but you can actually see the shadow of the, of the impression that's made on the paper, which is pretty amazing. So by the 1900s, uh, scientists are using that nature print process in tandem with actually making drawings and etchings so that you can get microscopic views, along with kind of full-size views of plants all in one drawing. A lot of things that photography can't do, right? At this point, it's not really great at reproducing microscopy. But of course, today, we would just take our underwater camera down to it and take a photograph of it, and we know exactly what it looks like in situ down at the bottom of the But the cyanotype process and the photogram process are something that's been used throughout photography. Um, Even today, there's still artists making uh, uh, photograms.
0: Um, But Bertha Jacques
1: was another female photographer, and she's working 1900s era. Um, But what I love about her cyanotypes is she's not pressing her specimens, so she gets that kind of shadow area effect as the light is kind of leaking around that 3D object, Bertha Jacques um, was better known as an etcher um, and she had gone to the Chicago Columbian Exposition in, um, in 1893 and seen, uh, uh, sorry, McNeil Whistler's etchings that he had done and really got excited by them and decided she wanted to be an artist like that. And her husband happened to be a surgeon so he fashioned a bunch of etching tools out of surgical tools for her bought her a press, and she just went crazy and made all kinds of prints. Um, and she actually helped to found the Chicago Society of Etchers in 1910. She was one of the founding members of that. You can really see in her etching, she does have that same kind of 3D effect. So I'm not sure if her, um, if her cyanotypes were feeding into how she was etching, if they were sometimes studies for that, or if she just loved that process as well. And then there's completely contemporary artists like Jimmy Fike, who are making things that look like photograms that are not photograms at all. And of course, in today's era, you could put the same specimen onto a flatbed scanner and scan it. But Jimmy Fike's not doing that. He's laying it out really carefully um, and then photographing it with his camera. Then he takes it into Photoshop and basically sucks all the color out of some of the parts of the plant. He's doing this kind of pseudoscience art thing. And I think the title of his work uh, really tells you about that. So I'm going to read it because it's really long and it's kind of great. But he's, he's emulating kind of these ideas of science from the, from the 1800s. So J.W. Fike's photographic survey of the wild edible botanicals of the North American continent, plates in which the edible parts of the specimens have been illustrated in color. Okay, So if we look at this one, this one's a dandelion. He's got the root in color, the leaf in color, the flower in color. So which part of it is edible? It's all edible, um, but he's still stripping out the color to kind of create an artistic effect and to really make you focus on the fact that all those different parts are edible. So the idea that science and art have always sort of fed into each other in photography um, is something I've kind of become interested in. But I really love these Henry Toth photographs that I found. Sorry, Troth photographs that I found in our collection. Um, because he's doing something that we know uh, scientists and people who are studying botanicals did in printmaking, which is he's cutting that specimen apart so it fits on the page nicely. Um, and as you can see in the sample on the right, you can see that the you can get to the bulb at the bottom, the stem. It's probably a rhizome. Um, my botanical language isn't always great, so if you're a gardener, I apologize in advance. but you can get to kind of all parts of the plant in one drawing. Well he's doing that in his photographs by cutting his specimens apart and kind of layering them next to each other. And they really have a wonderful and beautiful effect as he does that. So here's another example. But unlike Troth, um, Edwin Lincoln Hale or sorry, Edwin Hale Lincoln actually goes out into nature and digs up the whole plant and carries it back to his studio and makes this really beautiful portrait just kind of the most important part for him, the flower, whatever it is that's kind of the top of the plant. And then when he's done with that, he takes it back to where he dug it up and puts it back into nature. Uh, so it's kind of like no plants were harmed in the making of uh, this His photographs are really beautiful because you really get the texture of all of the leaves, particularly on the one on the right, you really can feel that it has that soft kind of lambs texture. Uh, and he published these in a series of portfolios that are available, um, some of them in our library. Carl Blossfeld is another pretty well-known photographer when it comes to botanicals, and what he's doing is actually making microscopic views of plant structures, but so that artists can study them. He was a teacher, and he, um, was working in metals is what he taught. And so he wanted his students to be able to see the structures of nature so they could replicate those in, his, um, in their art classes. So he just started making photographs. He made a lot of photographs and ended up publishing them also as books, also available in our library. And that's probably really how his photographs are best known is in that book format um, where you can just page through design after design that comes from nature itself. But Blasfeld wasn't the only if not the first uh, photographer to use photography to give basically design ideas to artists and textile makers and anything that you could think of, woodworkers, metalsmiths. Um, So Adolf Braun actually had a a business where um, he would make photographs and give them to people who are designing textiles. And I think that you can really see that come through in some of the textile designs at the same time period. This is a drawing made for a textile design on the right. And again, he's giving the sense of that plant and then is allowing the artist to kind of draw upon what does that leaf structure look like? What does that flower structure look like? And then they can be even more inventive on top of nature. Something that people don't often realize or talk about is that Eugene Atget was actually doing the same thing. He was making photographs and documenting Paris so that artists could use his photographs as a tool for making art. So um, he does have these beautiful little detailed photographs of flowers and plant structures, but equally he has details of the handrail at the bottom of the staircase, um, various other details that he finds in Paris. But he's also <laughs> taking pictures of Paris, street life, the people, the organ grinders, anything you can think about. And his photographs uh, work as a really beautiful document of Paris. Here's another photograph by Ache of Versailles. Um, and again, just documenting that space, but also allowing artists to use that. Over time, we've come to know Adjaye as an artist himself. That wasn't really his intention. He was just obsessed with making photographs of Paris. Um, But now we've kind of reclaimed him as an artist, um, even though that maybe wasn't his intention. But about the same time period, and uh, particularly around World War I, uh, modernism comes into photography. And at modernism, we really know that photography has come to its own. It's using technology, the photographic technology, to make pure photographs of what photographers see in the world as art, as the purpose of art. And uh, Albert Ringer Patch is definitely doing that. And I, I swapped out another slide that I also loved for this one because I have a bulb in a jar at home that's blooming right now. And it, I'm really obsessed with this image in my head. So it also made me think of all the hyacinths that aren't quite blooming out. Uh, in the Dutch Connection, quite yet. And then, of course, uh, still today, photographers are making things about this. I love this kind of postmodern image, where the vase is actually a water bottle, and kind of Telmans is kind of showing us the beauty of this thing against the really harsh reality of just what our our disposable world looks like. But photographers have been long inspired by art itself. And Sharon Korr, and you're, some of you might be going like, this isn't a photograph. This is a photograph. It is a pure, unmanipulated photograph of those flowers. And Sharon Corr is actually both gardener and photographer in this case. She, she is inspired by paintings that happen throughout um, many centuries of art, and basically tries to recreate them or the style of them in her photographs and is building this scene in her studio and photographing it so that it looks like a painting. And if you are a gardener, you might notice that all those flowers are not necessarily in bloom at the same time. Um, So she has a lot of um, various greenhouses and garden spaces on her property where she is growing all these things and knowingly trying to recreate these paintings that were made much earlier. So I want to show you a couple more. And in this case, we're comparing it to something that was made at that same time period that she's referencing. Right down to the shells and the lugs and all of Or right, Here's another one more contemporary in the um, impressionistic style. I think it's a pretty uh, pure call upon this Vincent Bengo. So right at the beginning of photography, and this is a daguerreotype from our collection, it's a little teeny tiny daguerreotype, it's a, just a tiny little quarter plate, um, that the artists at that stage, they're experimenting with photography and learning about how to use their camera. And the subjects that they turn to, we often see them drawing upon the same subjects that are in painting. So I think that in this case, the photographer, who we've come to call Cromer's amateur, and I'm happy to explain that here in a moment, but um, he's calling upon these kind of motifs that he's already seeing in art and painting, drawing, and using his camera to do the same thing. So I'm gonna take a moment to explain Cromer's amateur because my colleague, Heather Shannon, is working on an exhibition about um, Gabriel Cromer, who's an amazing collector of photography. And in, uh is it next year? No, two years. Three years. Three years, three. Years. And three. 2022. She, it's a long time to work on the project. Uh, in 2022, <laughs> she's gonna have an exhibit um, that she's working on, um, Gabriel Cromer, the collector. And when he was collecting, he found this pocket of daguerreotypes that he felt were all by the same person. It was pretty obvious. Um, I'm sure Edith could tell us more too, who's been cataloging all of our Cromer materials. Um, But over time, in all the history books, this individual came to be known as Cromer's amateur, an amateur photographer that Cromer identified as one maker of all these works. So in our system, it's come to be known as that, and in all the books, it's now come to be known as that. So rather than calling an unidentified photographer, it's Crummer's amateur. Mm -hmm. But at that very beginning of photography, there's no color, and that really was bothersome to people. They wanted photography to not only replicate the world, but to replicate it in true color. So over time, there's lots of different processes that um, come into being for a little blips of time, like the autochrome process, where um, people are trying to figure out how to make color photography possible. For autochromes, it's using that same theory that your eye sees kind of in a combination of three colors. So again, Tina Meller, our, our conservator, helped me make some uh, microscopic use. So particularly, I'm just kind of like blowing it up further and further so you see where it came from. But on the right-hand side, you see all those little dots? Those little dots are actually little grains of potato starch. Tiny, tiny grains that are like the perfect size. And they've been dyed into three colors. One is red-orange, one is green, and the other is blue-violet. So they take and make a batch of each of those dyed potato starch grains, mix them all together coat the plate with them and then have basically what's a gelatin silver negative, a plain old black and white negative on the back. And as they expose it, they use those potato starch grains as a filter to filter what colors are being recorded on that black and white plate. And then when you look at it, they become the color of the image. So they add in this color. But I'm gonna flip back real quick. You can tell it's not quite the color that we're used to. Kind of has this soft kind of pastel-y feel beautiful objects, um, but not quite accurate color, and really only used between 1907, when they were introduced by the Lumiere brothers, until about the 1920s. And again, very much amateur photographers. You would have had to have a darkroom in your house to make these things. (coughs) Edward Steichen, another kind of powerhouse photographer in the history of photography, loved playing with color. And he, in particular, used um, the dye imbibition, some people will know it as the dye transfer, Kodak dye transfer, the dye imbibition process um, to play with photography. So bear with me because I'm gonna explain it technically real quick. Don't get scared. (laughs) Uh, And the dye imbibition process is basically the same as um, Technicolor film. So I'm gonna use this Technicolor film illustration. So what you're gonna notice is that there's three different black and white negatives. And then there's three different colors that are being created from that, and that those three colors become a full color image. So essentially in the camera, where you're exposing those three black and white plates, each one is being exposed through a different color filter. One's red, one green, one blue. And each of those is recording a different portion of the color that we see onto that plate. That black and white negative is then used to make a positive image that's called a matrices, which is kind of a spongy gelatin material that you can then, and this is the imbibition part, imbibe. You can put it down into a bath of dye, and it'll imbibe that dye into that spongy matrices film in relationship to how hard or how much of that um, gelatin is left after it's been exposed from that negative. So some of it's a little thicker, and some of it's a little thinner it gets a little more a little less dye, And then you can take that sponge and, again, imbibe it into the paper. So one color, the cyan, the next one, the magenta, the next one, the yellow, are all layered onto one final substrate. In the case of moving image film, that's one clear piece of film. In the case of photography, that's one piece of paper. So all those colors then come to make a full color image. So what Steigen does is he plays with that. He puts the matrices into the wrong colors, essentially, just to see what would happen. Um, And this is a really wonderful example from our collection because I don't know if you can see them, but the little letters on the side, so they're B for blue, but it should be C for cyan, um, for magenta, and yellow uh, is Y. So on this one, you can see the, the B on the left is blue. But on the other side, it's the Y that's blue. So he's put that yellow matrices into the blue dye.
0: And he's put the blue matrices into the magenta dye.
1: And then he's put the magenta one into the yellow dye. So he's messed with the color just to see what would happen. He kind of turns out a little funerary, if you will. Uh, But he does this a lot. (laughs) And not all the examples in our collection have that evidence of the different the B, M, and Y onto them, Um, but we can definitely tell that he's playing with color. Steichen was also a gardener, and he bred um, delphiniums. That was his true passion, I think. He even had an exhibit of his delphiniums at MoMA while he was working there at one point in time. That's right, just like we have a flower show, MoMA had one. Um, But so I think he was playing with color a little bit to experiment with nature and what might be possible. So another uh, photographer who's really using, uh, Nick's going to run around real quick because there's a little bit of sound coming up. So don't mind that. Um, But Ori Gersh basically is experimenting with photography in a different way that changes how we see. So if Saiken is changing how we see color, uh, Ori Gersh is changing how we see time in relationship to photography and really stopping it in a way that our eyes can't see. so in this case, he's taken a vase of flowers, laced it with explosives, <laughs> That's right. uh, then put liquid nitrogen over it, and then exploded it, and has multiple cameras all pointed at it, all taking lots of photographs all at the same time, and then he goes back and picks out which ones are the best. And he, he, when he prints these, they're giant. If you remember seeing the exhibition, I think it's about eight feet tall. So it's a really um, big thing. So let's take just a second. But he also makes videos of these explosions. And it's in slow-mo. Um, and the sound is really great. So I wanted to give you the opportunity to see one and hear one.
0: basically taking enough
1: still images that he can make a video with it, and then using those still images to select which one he might make into a photograph. I can play that again when, when the lecture's over, because it's pretty amazing to watch. Imagine um, a very young me in the Hirshhorn in D.C walking through the gallery by myself, and there's a TV screen, and it's black, and it's showing this this vase, and I'm like, what's going on there? There seems to be a sound coming out of it. And I get real close to it, because I'm like, I oh, don't know, is it moving? It feels like the flowers might just be doing this. And all of a sudden, it explodes, and I get really close to it. I think I jumped back and looked around, and like, did I do that? Like, <laughs> They're pretty mind-blowing when you see know. them. Another photographer who's showing us something that we may not be aware of is Brad Tempkin. And he's actually photographing spaces that are very hidden from most people. And that's because they're at the top of the building, on the rooftop of the building. So I have three photographs that show the same rooftop. And it's great because here he's looking at it in winter. I like that there's beehives up there. Here he's looking at it more in spring. beautiful red tree. And then here we get that kind of bird's-eye view of this space. And I've looked at this image a lot, trying to figure out which tree that is and which where the beehives are. And you can find them if you're looking, but I think the tree is up in the upper left. I can't remember where I saw the beehives. They might be over on the right Uh, But he's done this in all kinds of spaces, engineering spaces, industrial spaces, cities. And what's amazing is that here we are as a human culture taking over space and trying to recreate nature somewhere. And what's amazing is that all the people down below probably don't even know that garden exists. So unless you're up in one of the buildings next door, or you're in that building and you have the privilege of going to that rooftop garden, you don't have access to that same nature. A little bit sad, maybe. Rachel Sussman talks about this kind of concept in a different way and looking at how humans are kind of interacting with nature and I love this photograph of the um, garden in Kyoto being constructed where you get this real sense of like beautiful nature, maybe nature that's pure and natural and then you get the blue pipe running through it and you're not quite sure why there's a blue pipe in the middle of nature, And then you see her title that says it's under construction, which makes you totally rethink what you're looking at. You're not looking at nature, you're looking at human constructed nature. How do we influence what nature looks like? Which is basically gardening, right? That's what we're always doing, and we like to try to make and tame nature in some way. And we've been doing that for a long time, and I like that photography shows us this traje- trajectory of humans interacting with the landscape um, pretty much from its beginnings. In this case, uh, what we believe is a photograph by John Thompson is basically the foundations of the Botanical Garden in Hong Kong. This is the same year that it opened. Um, So the fact that he happened to be there and able to record that space as a newly built space is pretty amazing. Uh, Modern day photographs of this and I tried to find one that was comparable. The garden is so, um, the trees are so big that you just can't get this view. And in addition to that, there's now giant tall buildings between the garden and the harbor. So uh, the vantage is completely different. But that idea of being an armchair traveler that you can go anywhere with photography and see something that you might not get to go and see in person is pretty fantastic. And I was thinking about this photograph of two women in Japan, and the idea that maybe chrysanthemum haven't come to other continents yet. Like maybe you can never see a chrysanthemum, that's your first interaction, is a hand-colored photograph, and how weird that might seem. And I think they also take us to places that we might get familiar with because we are not um, the upper class with a giant estate in England, uh, having a purely beautiful manicured lawn and landscape around us. Uh, Roger Fenton was systematically going around England and documenting all these spaces. And he takes two views of Chatsworth House. Um, And one is from very far away, so it's very in the distance. So you see all that land kind of building up to it. And then this one that's kind of peeking over a wall, which makes me think that they didn't actually let him into their estate. So he's doing this both in the very large format that you just saw, which is probably uh, 2024-ish in our modern-day minds. But he's also doing these in small, uh, stereo-sized images. And I know they're stereo-sized, one, because of the size, but two, also that uh, around the corner at the top, he, re- he uh, produced a series of stereos that people could purchase. So you could see the world in 3D, right? Um, So he's carrying around a stereo camera he's carrying around a large plate camera He's carrying around all the chemistry that goes along with that all the glass plates that go along with that And probably a portable darkroom so that he can make that all happen But I wanted to show you the stereo camera just because I think a lot of people have never seen one And the idea that there's physically two lenses that are mimicking how far apart our eyes are So they can get that same vantage, you know, if you do the camera one, camera two thing, like you did when you were a kid, left right, um, the world shifts slightly. And we might not be able to tell that necessarily when we're looking at the stereo cards themselves, um, that those two images are slightly different. But what I did was I put them together in an animated GIF, which starts to give you the sense that um, you get a little bit of space. So I've kept it slow, so hopefully it's not so bad. So that is um, the house of Anne Hathaway, which is um, William Shakespeare's wife. So I'll just do it again. Free 3D views of the current virtual reality. You too could travel to England and see Anne Hathaway's house. Um, so I want to give you a sense of how much equipment that might look like, and this is the closest picture I could really come to where a photographer was sitting with the equipment that they were carrying around. Um, but you can see that they've got multiple cameras, they've got their glass plates all packed away in boxes. And of course, like I said, they also had chemistry, they had a portable darkroom, they had a lot going on that they had to carry around with them.
0: But what George Eastman
1: does is make it so you don't have to carry around all that stuff, which is cool. He gives us this little tiny box that you can hold and take with you no matter where you go. And you don't have to have chemistry every time you want to take a photograph. You can just have it um, kind of roll your film to the next negative and magically make 100 images inside of that box, which really frees people up when it comes to taking photographs in the garden. Because now you can take pictures that are a little bit more casual. And I like these snapshots because um, I have that same, like I always had my picture taken in front of the same rose bush my entire life. Um, I feel like this guy next to the hollyhocks or the little girl next to this um, kind of evergreen tree, that's where their family took the photos every time something special happened. Um, so we can really see that. He's probably also showing off those hollyhocks. the pretty great. Or it can be a little bit more casual. Here's somebody actually physically gardening, right? Before that, photography was so precious that you would only take maybe a formal portrait of yourself. But now you can really play with it. And you can play with it to like take a picture of your dog. Why not? Or um, you could just be the flower and get in the (laughs) bush. Uh, And Peter Cohen, he's graciously a lot of snapshots from his collection. He's a snapshot collector. He made a book called Women in Bushes uh, because there's so many women in bushes. And uh, It's like everybody said, just get in the bush, you're like the father. Um This is a somewhat casual picture of Nicholas Mirai. This is a different transition, I guess, but um, Nicholas Mirai was on assignment for Vanity Fair and Vogue when he got to go to Claude Monet's house. And it was so significant that he took a picture of himself in front of the gate because he um, was excited to get to go to Paris and to go to Claude Monet's house in Giverny. And he took portraits of, um, of Claude Monet the same year that he passes away. So this is um, in June that he's taking the photographs, and Claude Monet passes away in December. So we really see him right at the end of his life. And in some of them, the one on the right you can wearing his glasses, but his glasses are very thick. You you can really get a sense that he's not seeing very well. But Nicholas Murray also records parts of the estate at that time, and I love this one, it's a platinum print. um, Or sorry, this is a gelatin silver print, but it really feels that soft, kind of beautiful sense that a Monet painting might feel. But Murray also takes pictures of this space which um, becomes a very significant space when you look at pictures of Giverny over time. Uh, and I say that because in, after Monet's death, this whole landscape kind of falls apart. And later on in the 1980s, they decide to revive it and to basically make that a space where people can go and celebrate Monet and celebrate that landscape. And they invite Stephen Shore to come and make a project on this. And he goes and makes a photograph of these same kind of archways. And as I was looking at photography and looking at how people image Chivarney itself, those archways become really important. And more contemporary um, to Stephen Short, Abe Morrell has gone back and photographed it with his tent camera. So in this case, he physically has a tent that he's made into a camera by putting kind of like a periscope at the top. And that gathers light and brings it back down and projects it onto the ground inside the tent, and then he's photographing that image that is projected onto the ground. So you get a mashup of the image that is the vantage from where you'd be standing, as well as the ground you're physically standing on. Right? So the spot that you're standing in combination with the, uh, the vista, if you will, and this one's two vistas of need, but the one on the left has that same some archways. And I had the opportunity, um, very fortunate opportunity to go to Martha Stewart's garden. And there was Giverney in her garden, basically. She had been influenced by what she had seen and recreated these same kind of trellises. So I thought that was really interesting. Uh, Andrew Buurman is working in England on allotment gardens. And just after... Um, or during the wars, basically people were given spaces where they could grow their own vegetables and flowers. Um, And in this case, he's an outsider looking in on these people and it's really fantastic to see that space as a community that people come to. They have dances, they have markets, they bring their children, um, they have competitions where people are comparing the size of parsnips. It's really fantastic space. Uh, But I think of him I don't think he's a member of that garden, so he's an outsider looking in and kind of gathering this information and making a project on it. In comparison to Larry Sultan's project on his family um, called Pictures From Home, where he's looking in on his parents. Um, And it's really a portrait of 1980s kind of family life and what the American ideal is. Um, So I like, in his project, as I was looking through it, it struck me how much the garden came up in their everyday life. So of course here we have kind of the garden being trimmed. Dad's meeting inside, taking a break there. But then inside the house, they brought nature inside in every way they can. Right, the, that uh, couch is like a hedgerow. Uh, there's like the hedgerow of the wallpaper between them. You can kind of feel the tension these spaces, even the carpet is kind of like grass. Um, so really in terms of the decor, decor of the home, the home itself becomes a character in Larry Sultan's project. And Larry Sultan himself said on this project that the institution of the family, and remember when the 1980s, so kind of the Reagan era, um, the institution of the family was being used as an inspirational symbol by the resurgent conservatives. I wanted to puncture this mythology of the family and to show what happens when we are driven by images of success. And I was willing to use my family to prove a point. So here, here's his dad inside. Not only is he with that plant, but he's with that wonderful wallpaper. And then um, a critic of this same series wrote that Uh, The series is a tricky balancing act between critical distance and emotional engagement between empathy and voyeurism. So you do really have that sense that you're inside their space. That's because Larry Sultan is familiar with his parents and they're familiar with him. They're not acting for the camera. They're just going about their everyday lives. And in this one, you can see both the wallpaper but also that she's got flowers on her sweatshirt. So really in the series, gardens just keep coming back and back And this wallpaper made me think of Tanya Marcuse's work, which um, Nick spoke about briefly with the the exhibition coming up. And the series that is going to be shown is called Woven. And that series is expanding upon previous series that she's done, but in this case, she's gathering animals and plants and making arrangements that are kind of inspired by uh, artists like Jackson Pollock, if you will, but really medieval tapestries. And that's where Woven comes from, the idea of medieval tapestry. I just want to point out these photographs are five feet high by 10 feet wide. So they're also the size of the of tapestry. So this is a detail from one of those so that you can kind of see what she's going into there. If you saw in the garden, we showed one from a previous series called Fallen, which was really about the fall of Eden, that moment where man gets kicked out of the Garden of Eden and all all hell kind of breaks loose. And so in this image, there's snakes, and there's bats, and there's mice, and everything's kind of weaving up and out of the the landscape. But she's really constructing these things. So this is a picture of Marcuse in her studio that's an outdoor studio. And she works in that studio all year long. So right now, she's out there probably working in her studio. And she's built this, basically this way of making a giant slanted table where she constructs these things. So she gathers all these, she finds a dead snake, she's freezing it, she's keeping it, and when she's ready to make her project, she brings it out and puts it out. And what's amazing is, particularly in the Wogan series, she's working on these giant uh, tapestries for so long that the things are actually physically starting to grow and change in that space as well. So you get that sense as you get to the details of her images. So that's gonna be on view June 8th through January 5th of next year, so you have a nice long time to come back and enjoy those uh, summer, fall, and winter, which I think her series really does kind of look at all those different time periods too, the idea of seasons changing. So with that, I'm gonna end my talk. Um, I just wanna remind you that I will be around if you want me to sign your book, and as Nick noted, I'm always here, I work here. So um, if you want your book signed anytime, just come by. Thanks yesterday. Uh, but if anybody has questions, I'm happy to answer them. I'm happy to stick around as well and talk if you like. Thanks for coming today. I hope you enjoy the Dutch connection and the exhibits that are on the display as well. Yeah. Questions? Yeah. Feel free to leave if you need to.
0: In that uh Israeli uh, motion Yeah, the, the Ori Gersh. Yeah, the yeah, lower. Uh, it looked like uh one of Right after the explosion, it seemed like a lot of the pieces that were floating around, and, and there was a little bit of sound. Uh, maybe it was from the vase that was, was not from the flowers. Right, a, yes. Not, I mean, but towards the very end, there seemed to be like a zoom in or a close up or something, and you actually saw a flower with a stem, and the uh, bloom of the flower was not, uh, hadn't disintegrated. It was. Uh, you know, sort of just it around in space
1: or something. Yeah, that, that's kind of the beauty of his project is you get that whole vase of flowers and that really kind of moment of decay, that moment of, like, nature where, where evil or decay or something might take over. And you do get the vase in there, but I think in all of his photographs he really brings in where you see petals and different things like that. And he didn't zoom in that video. It's all completely one still shot. But I think what happens is the flowers kind of go out of the frame, and then they fall back into the frame and come into focus. So you do at the end of that one see that, that kind of lovely red rose kind of fall into the corner in that slow motion way. Yes? Jamie, many of the pictures were inkjet. Doesn't inkjet fade particularly fast? Or certainly, if you get water on it, it runs? Um, it depends on the inkjet print. And so early inkjets were much more uh, fugitive than current ones are. And over time, we we have inkjets from all kinds of eras and different ways of making them. There's lots of different ways of making an inkjet print. And actually, our colleagues over at Image Permanence Institute at RIT have been studying that for quite some time. They're still studying different ways to care for them and what might happen to them in different disaster scenarios, for instance, a flood. Um, So yes, some of them are really really fugitive in water in particular others are really fugitive if they get scratched or if anything abrades them um, but in this case we do our best to care for all these things and oftentimes they're framed so they're protected so apparently the artist doesn't consider the permanence when they're doing this is this convenience maybe i can tell you all these artists are considering the permanence definitely um tanya marcus brad temkin Gerisch, they're all thinking about permanence as they're making their images, but they're also thinking about what they want the final thing to look like. So it's kind of a careful balance. And like I said, some of them, um, they make sure that their photographs get framed immediately so that they're protected over time. Roy Gerst has a laminate that he puts on the surface of his photographs, which is still the surface of the photograph then. Um, So it's hard for us to take care of it, but that's our job. That's what we do is take care of cultural heritage. So it becomes our problem. It becomes your problem. (laughs) Yes?
0: Um, I I like the one particular of Monet's garden in which the vines in 1946 were sort of taking over the uh, the little pathway there. Right. Uh, Is that motif that people explore with um, with sort of nature winning out over...
1: Yeah, uh, are you looking at this one, the Stephen here? Yeah, um, I think gardens. If you think about gardens, kind of come in two ways. There's like the super manicured garden that we think of more like a um, like a romantic, very like structured garden, and then there's the ones that are very wild nature. And I think um, there were parts of Monet's garden that were both of those things. But I think a lot of his garden was wild nature. So I don't think it was weird that these these vines would have been taking over in his space. I think it. Tells you more about the gardener than it does about the garden itself, yeah. Yeah. How large did you say that Tanya Marcuse? Tanya Marcuse, they're five feet tall by 10 feet wide. So where are they developed? She, she um, is printing them as inkjet prints, I believe, but she has a lab that she works with that has a very large scale printer um, that sometimes photographers piece things together. But I think in they that case, they are one big piece. Yeah. And um, I don't know how we're hanging them yet. But
0: they will be framed. They, will, be they framed. will not have glazing on them. So I'll use this time now to encourage everyone to not get too close or try to touch them. I
1: encourage you not
0: to touch anything in the museum. <laughs> uh, it's hard to get uh, glass or plexiglass at that scale. But they will be mounted and they will be framed. Um, and as far as how she makes them, um, I actually went out to uh, Tanya's studio back in September, and uh, the image that Jamie had shown of her in her studio, there, um, right here, the uh, slanted wall is actually on a, a row of, of casters on the bottom. So she photographs things in, in framed sections. So it's not just one, it's not one photograph that you see, you're actually seeing her build a section, kind of roll it to the next side and roll the next one in and kind of build off of that and create this like seamed together image. So it's really made up of probably 10 or more images would be my guess. Where is her studio? Uh, it is in the Hudson Valley um, Hudson Bay,
1: yeah, <laughs> not too far.
0: It's a beautiful area. So yeah. are the
1: different images gridded together or superimposed?
0: On? Well, they're stitched together, but it, it it creates a seamless. The way that she photographs, she's able to create like because of the way that she slides them across, it it it, it, it allows her to keep a, a seam that never uh, gets broken. So she's devised this method of shooting, and like the way that she has them at this angle, it looks like they're photographed from straight down. Uh, so it creates this like very kind of flattened perspective. Um, and she has multiple freezers throughout her property filled with all sorts of, yeah. Uh, if you follow yeah. her on Instagram, you see all of her critters come out of the freezer
1: periodically. Yeah. She was here, wasn't she? Yeah, yeah, she was here when we did um, In the Garden. Uh, she came when we did a gallery talk. And, we're happy to be having her back again. She's really fantastic and speaks very well of her own work. Yes. Is that talk out on SoundCloud by any chance? The Tanya Marcuse yeah. one, I think it's before we were doing that. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not recorded. It was a gallery, like a small gallery talk. Yeah. It was a pop-up event. Yeah, I think you're right. All right, well, I'll let you all go and enjoy real flowers on the just stick around and